Welcome to Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. I'm your host, Melissa Clark, a professional counselor in the Dallas area with a passion for helping you overcome challenges, process painful emotions, and understand your God-given identity. Thank you so much for being here. I believe listening to this podcast will leave you feeling excited, educated, and empowered. As you guys know, we are in the middle of a year-long series all about helping you to live healthy. We're looking at every angle of who you are as a person and helping you to thrive in your life. Today's show is so exciting for me. You guys know I'm a parent of two kids, uh, Ethan 14, Avery 11. And so personally, this is one of those books and interviews that I was like, so happy to do for myself. We're sitting down and talking with Dr. Jessica Peck about common teen issues. She is a pediatric nurse practitioner, and she's been one for over 25 years. She has her doctor of nursing degree. She has an advanced practice registered nurse degree. She's a clinical professor at Baylor University. She is so smart. She is so intelligent, but she's also so relatable. She's a mom to four kids. So she knows what it's like to parent teens and young ones. And today's interview was so helpful. We dive into the mental health challenges of our kids today. If you're not a parent, I still highly recommend that you tune in because like I always say, I hope kids are somehow a part of your life. But even if they aren't, I feel like the show is still relevant for all of us because she helps us to navigate difficult conversations about mental health. And whether they're with kids or your neighbor or loved one, whatever, whomever, it's still super applicable. I loved her transparency. I loved her honesty and vulnerability. I get vulnerable too. And I do anytime the kids are a topic of conversation because, you know, we joke as parents that there's no parenting manual. And let me tell you, my kids get older and older. And as they navigate different issues and more emotional issues and their challenges. It's just as a parent, it is hard and it's a struggle. I hope you love this conversation as much as I do. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jessica Peck. I want to welcome to the show, Dr. Jessica Peck. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I am super excited both as a host, but also as a parent, you have a new book out behind closed doors. And as a reader, I have to tell you, I was like highlighting and (laughs) making notes and looking ahead at different chapters and things I'm struggling with my own kids. And so both as a professional and as a parent, I found your book super helpful and I love your relational style. Tell us a little bit about the heart behind the book. Sure. Well, you know, I really, this book is the book that I wish I had had starting out because people can look at my credentials and my professional life and think, oh, she has it all together, but it's really hard to do (laughs) in the home. You know, we, I can give all the advice in the clinic, but you know, actually implementing it. And actually this book started when my oldest daughter was 13 and we were driving in my car, having a recurrent argument that was pretty heated. And she actually threw a book at my head 
while we were driving. It was a multi-volume book. Like I had that book <laughs> It was a thick book. <laughs> it wasn't just, you know, she was intentional and she's given me permission to share this story now. And I realized, you know, I had a very broken relationship with my mother, actually, you know, completely estranged at that point. And I just didn't have that guidance. And I felt like something had to change. And so as I've journeyed as a mom and learning more, I looked, especially at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when I'm sitting at home and I realize I have all these tools and skills and my kids are still struggling how much more are other parents struggling so I really that started me on a journey to create drnursemama.com and just to create this guide on the side for parents to have the my professor brain my hands-on nursing experience and my heart as a mom mm. really to equip parents to build healthy relationships with their teens I love the breakdown of the book. It's it's in sections, which I found really interesting as a professional because there's a part that's like behind, you know, the clinic doors. And then there's part that's, you know, you as a mom. And then also that biblical component of that devotional life with our kids. What helps you to create that flow? Again, it was just kind of thinking in that uh that compartmentalized version and all of those holistic things that I have as a nurse practitioner, I really care about holistic health. It's not just about your body. It's about your mind and your spirit and your emotions and your academic health and your mental health and all of those things. And I just looked back at my experience and what informed my parenting. And so you're right. I have behind the clinic door where I share, you know, professional advice for parents on tough teenage issues and how to navigate the healthcare system. So I share true stories of patients, you know, of course, the details have been changed a little bit to protect their privacy, but I want parents to see how does a kid who's sexting end up in front of a pediatric nurse practitioner? Like, what is the chain of events that happens that leads me to see that behind my clinic door? Because it's not like, you know, when they're babies and they have a cold or a sore throat and you just pick up the phone, you don't even think twice, you call and make an appointment. Yeah. But I really wanted to empower parents to navigate the healthcare system, to know when to make an appointment and what to expect you know, when they go to that appointment, because I think a lot of parents for mental health, and we can talk about this more, but uh, they expect a prescription, you know, that's what they think is going to mm -hmm. happen. And they're afraid of that. And so I wanted to kind of demystify that. Then I've got behind the home door where I give you it's kind of a Jumanji style parenting adventure, <laughs> where I give you conversation settings and, and conversation keys, really, um, I adapted a technique that we use in, in, you know, as a nurse practitioner in healthcare, motivational interviewing, how can we use those principles at home to listen and to really open up healthy conversations uncomfortable about uncomfortable topics in a comfortable way. And then I have behind the heart door because I'm telling you, you know, exploring these issues and facing and understanding the realities that our teens are facing today it is hurtful to your heart. It yeah. will make you sad. And so I want to take really good care of parents' hearts as we're going through that. So yes, all of the spiritual health, devotionals, playlists, uh, legacy letters you can write for your teens, mm -hmm. and really taking care of your own mental health and recognizing you know, some of the issues that you might have that you maybe just didn't recognize before. What are you seeing in your practice today that maybe you weren't seeing five or 10 years ago? Even five years ago, you know, I've been in pediatric nursing for 25 years and I look at how dramatically my practice has changed 
And I, I can't even believe it. You know, in 20 years, I maybe saw one teenager who vaguely thought she might identify as lesbian. But now I see gender nonconforming kids every single day. Uh, I see kids who have vaping issues every single week. I, when I was working in a community regional hospital, I had suicide ideations every single day, admissions for that every day. I see substance abuse. I see a lot of sexting. I mean, that didn't even exist, you know, five years ago, really, because we didn't have smartphones like we do now. Cyberbullying. I mean, every topic that I wrote about in the book, I feel like that's what we're talking about in the pediatric healthcare community, that our practice has just fundamentally transformed in the way that we're having to meet kids where they are. What about mental health? What challenges and changes are you seeing within the mental health realm with our kids today? Well, you know, even before COVID, we were seeing an increase in things like anxiety and depression. Part of that is a really good thing because I think this generation is willing to engage in conversation about mental health in a way that no previous generation has done. You know, we have the greatest generation who was admirable, you know, just so heroic, but they had to stuff their emotions, right? You know, they couldn't talk about the things they'd experienced. And so they were distant. And then we have free love generation that wanted to feel that love. And then, you know, then we have the latchkey kids and just looking at the generational differences. Now we have a generation of kids who say, hey, I want to say it's okay to not be okay. And the thing that concerns me is, you know, looking at the national narrative, we have somebody like Simone Biles, who is an American hero, right? Uh, What people said, or she's a villain for Mm -hmm. stepping out of the Olympics. And that was kind of the dynamic there. And I look at these teenagers who are watching this, somebody who's Simone Biles, who has all the accolades you can imagine. She has fame. She has amazing ability. And if people are going to say that about her, what are they going to say about them? And uh, so I think that, you know, we're just seeing more conversation about anxiety and depression, but I'm, I'm just seeing those in just record numbers almost so much that it's just difficult to handle. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to go right to parents and give them tools to access the healthcare system, know when to get help and how to do that. Mm -hmm. You write that only one in two kids are actually receiving the help that they need in regards to their mental health needs. Why do you think that is? I think that's a lot of times because it's just difficult for parents to accept a mental health diagnosis. I share in the book uh, about my own journey with my daughter who was experiencing anxiety and even me as a pediatric nurse practitioner, it took me a long time to recognize and realize that. And I think that parents, when they come in, they're worried about things like cancer or, you know, some horrible, awful physical disease. And a lot of times anxiety and depression manifest as physical complaints. They have real headaches. They have real stomach aches. They've got real symptoms. And the parents are just really afraid of that kind of you know physical diagnosis. But when you say it's anxiety, or depression, they kind of think, ah, I don't really know what to think about that. Like, is that, Mm -hmm. is this a real thing? What will people think? And it it takes a long time, I think, for them to kind of accept that. And then they think, is this my fault? Like, Mm -hmm. is this something I did? Like, maybe I don't want to go there because that's uncomfortable. Maybe I have anxiety or depression and I'm not ready to see that manifested in my kid. And there's some unnecessary guilt, you know, that we torture ourselves with. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those factors, but also we have to discuss the fact 
that it's very difficult to access mental health care services. So sometimes you yeah. have parents willing to go, but they can't afford it. They can't go to an hour appointment once a week. They don't have anybody in their community or accessible by telehealth. So all of those factors just make for a really complex situation. And I'm sure on your end of it, that's got to be so hard to see the kids and to know that there's a need, but there's only so much you can do in your practice and office. And there, there needs to be a team in place. That's absolutely true. And that's where really a team and layered approach can help. So there are immediate interventions that we can do in pediatric primary care that can bridge a gap to help you until you can get to mental health services, if those are even needed. Sometimes just some interventions and some brief counseling through a primary health care provider can be enough to set you on your way. There's other resources that we can give you like workbooks or exercises or things like that that are helpful. But the other things that are helpful are just having trusted adults in your teen's life that they can go to and talk to. So that might be a coach or a teacher or a counselor at school or someone that you designate, you know, as this is somebody safe, you can go and talk to. And having all of that layered protection, it takes a village, I think, to raise it really a teen. does. So important. It really does. I know for my kids, I mean, I try and the more people in place, then I get to be the cheerleader and only carry a little bit of the emotional support versus all the emotional support. And I feel like, especially for my daughter and I, that caused so much friction when I was trying to be her counselor. She did <laughs> yes. not want me to be her counselor. She did not want to hear anything about it. She simply <laughs> wanted me to listen. Yes. And that was it just to listen. And that was like so hard because I want to help. And she was, she did not want that help for me, but she will get it from other people. And, you know, you bring up an important point. I hear a lot of parents say, you know, they don't know what to say when their kids might express, you know, these concerns. And I tell them, you know what, at first you really don't have to say anything. Kids just really want you to listen. I think that's a reason we have two ears and one mouth. We really <laughs> just listen twice as much as we speak and just listen and starting with some affirmation and just saying, you know, I really, I, I, this, I don't know what to think about this, but I see that you're hurting and I see that you're struggling and I want you to know I care and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to figure this out with you together. Mm-hmm. That's all that you need to say at first, you know, you don't have to solve all of their problems or, you know, um, you can't lecture your way into right relationship or, you know, talk your way out of a problem. A lot of times they just need that, that emotional validation. Especially I think when it comes to depression and anxiety, which if if it's a biological reason, that will be an ongoing thing that they will deal with. I was just going to say, I know it is so important too for parents to recognize that biological component. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, especially like in church settings, we tend to over-spiritualize mental health and we say things like, oh, be anxious for nothing. Why are you anxious? And for someone with anxiety, they don't know why they're anxious. And so having to say, I don't know, is more anxiety producing or it, may make you try to even make something up so that you don't sound like, you know, I don't know why I'm anxious. Well, then don't be anxious, you know? And I think just recognizing that, yes, there definitely is a spiritual component and a need for spiritual support, but there also is a biological basis for that. And especially with kids 
their brains are not developed until they're 21. And so those chemicals that happen, you know, anxiety, what, how I explain it to parents is it's like, if you're in the woods and you meet a bear, you're going to feel anxious, you know, unless you're my husband who would probably try to ride the bear, but <laughs> most people are going to, you know, have that fight or flight response, which is really healthy. But anxiety is like taking that bear home with you and it just pops out all the time and you're in that constant fight or flight state. And that is very difficult, you know, for your brain to change it, but, but it can be done because kids' brains are a neuroplastic and we can rewire the way that their brains think about that. Mm -hmm. What do parents need to be on the lookout for in regards to depression and anxiety that maybe looks a little bit different than with grownups? Well, I think that a lot of times, you know, anxiety and depression will manifest at a kind of surprisingly young age. You know, it can manifest starting around six, seven, eight years of age. And a lot of times it's going to manifest as those physical things. It's going to be tummy aches. It's going to be nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. For depression, it may be irritability is a really common presenting symptom. Mm -hmm. Alterations in sleep pattern. I can't go to sleep. Once I go to sleep, I wake up and I can't stay asleep. And usually what I have is parents coming in. They don't come in and say, hey, I think my kid might have anxiety or depression. They say, I think my kid has mono, or I think, you know, my kid has the flu or, you know, has um, a GI problem. And a lot of times I see parents go down a long, expensive and invasive route of testing because they're wanting that to make sure they really do want to make sure that there's nothing physically wrong with their child. So I think just being open, of course, it's the role of your healthcare provider to make sure that none of those things are there. But when they bring up the subject of mental health, I think it's really important to have an open mind and just to think maybe this could be. And if you look back and you see this pattern, sometimes that's what, that was my experience with my daughter. It's kind of like that, you know, the end of the sixth sense movie where you look back and you see, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's what that was. oh, that's what that was. Uh -huh. And uh, so I think, you know, those are things to look for. And the, the uh, analogy that I give in the book is the optometry analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, if your teacher calls and says, I think that your child is having trouble seeing the board at school. You don't even think twice. You pick up the phone, you call the optometrist and they say, your kid is nearsighted and you pick out glasses and it's a big, you know, positive thing. And you hope that nobody makes fun of them and you take pictures on social media and glasses are in right now. So, you know, sometimes they even wear them without a prescription. So that's helpful. But if your teacher calls and says, hey, your kid is really irritable and not turning in their work and not paying attention, you know, you may be that mom like me who says, oh, I'm on it. I'll talk to mm -hmm. them. Don't worry. I will fix this. But you don't pick up the phone and call your primary care provider or a mental health care provider or counselor and say, hey, I think that we need to talk about this. And so we just need to decrease that stigma and shame that's associated with seeking care for mental health. It's such a shame that in 2022, there's still stigma involved with depression and anxiety. It absolutely is. And stigma, it, a lot of people say, well, you know, what is stigma really? But it's just really an unhealthy coping mechanism that we're all guilty of at some time or another. And that fear that something bad is going to happen to me or someone that I love. So I want to find something about them that's different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you start thinking about that when you hear someone has mental health and you start, you know, your mind starts going and thinking, oh, well, maybe they have divorced and I'm not divorced or they have substance use and I'm 
them don't have substance use and they lost their job and I didn't lose my job. And you just kind of separate them. And really at its core, it's just social rejection. So often parents, you know, they don't fear the the consequences of physical illness as much as they fear the what they what they perceive to be fatal social injuries. Mm. What is my child going to, what are people going to think of my child? What are people going to say about me as a parent? And they're more afraid of that than the real physical health consequences that can come from anxiety or depression. We're talking about self-harm and suicide and you know other physical illnesses. And so we just really need to provide um, and think about in our homes, even how we talk about other people with mental health, because when we do that as parents, our kids are listening and they think, oh, I don't really want to say that because that's what you would say about me. And we're not doing that in a mean spirited way. We're doing that, like I said, as a coping mechanism to kind of say, oh, this is my reassurance. This will never happen to me. But I think that, you know, it's just really important for parents to have that compassionate approach and to uh, be open uh, to the real experience that their kid is having. Mm -hmm. We know that so much of depression and anxiety is inherited and genetic. I like to joke with my kids. Um, My husband is very easygoing. And so he has like no inner critic. His mood is very even keel. (laughs) (laughs) And so one day my son and I were talking about like genetics and I was like, you know, you're welcome. This is what I passed down to you. (laughs) And he's like, why did I get the non-inner critic? I said, because that gene has to be a recessive (laughs) passive gene (laughs) because the inner critic is very dominant and controlling. But something I try and do as a, I think this is helpful. You can guide me with your wisdom and expertise, but it's to say like, I'm struggling today. I, my anxiety is high. And so I need to go lay down. I need to go for a walk. I need to pray. I need to lay off coffee. These are the things I needed to do to protect my own mental health and well being, And just trying to be out, process out loud, not in a way of putting it on them, but just letting them know I'm struggling today, or I feel really good today because I did X, Y, and Z, letting them know that a mental health journey is ongoing long-term for everything. It's not a switch that we flip and then we're good as much as I wish it was that way, if I'm being (laughs) honest. Right. But it's an ongoing thing for me where I have cycles and seasons. And so what do you think about that as far as parents normalizing and talking about their own mental health journey? Oh, I think it's so important to normalize it because kids watch everything we do. They know all of our insecurities. They could probably tell you exactly which part of your body you're most insecure about, that your, your, uh, you know, personality traits that you're insecure about. They're very sensitive and in tune to our moods. And so a lot of times when we're irritable or when we're depressed and we try to put that off and just say, well, you're frustrating me today, or, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm the mom and, you know, that's, uh, you can't question me like that, you know, that kind of thing. It really leaves them with this big question mark of what's going on. And I think if we just explain it to them in a very 
age appropriate, developmentally appropriate way, just like you just did. Just say, you know, I'm struggling today. I'm feeling a little anxious. So I'm going to go lay down or I'm going to take some time to go on a walk. And, you know, the neighbor's going to come stay with you and I'm fine. And you can ask me any questions you want to ask me. I used to ask my, uh, my daughter who was struggling with anxiety. And I still do actually as a nurse, you know, we'll ask about a pain scale from zero to 10 and I'll ask her, you know, what is your, how are you doing? Give me a number from one to 10. And just that one little number will kind of tell me how she's doing. But I think one of the most gratifying moments as a mother was when I was really kind of struggling one day and she looks at me and says, what's your number, mom? Aww. And I was able to tell her, you know, I'm, a, I'm running at about a six today. And so she's like, okay, what can I do to help out? And then, you know, she, she was able to do the little things that she was able to do, but even cleaning the dishes when it wasn't her job to do that, that took stress off of my plate. And that was really helpful. And I think, you know, we can do that in a very age appropriate way. And I see kids whose parents are struggling and actually even had a conversation um, with one uh, parent who was struggling with anxiety. And I said, I really think, you know, I see that they're asking questions, you know, with their eyes, even just saying, is my mom okay? Mm. Is my dad okay? Like, is something bad going to happen? And they need that reassurance. Mm. I'll just say the last thing is one of the stories I share in the book is about my daughter experiencing that. And when she first had anxiety, she would have crippling panic attacks. It was humiliating to her, just humiliating because they're so physical, you know, yeah. and they're so scary. So as soon as she started to have one, I was actually the nurse at a camp. She comes running into my office, locks the door, just boohooing, crying her eyes out. All of her little friends come running in afterwards thinking they had hurt her feelings. They were horrified thinking they did something and they had no idea what. And she was saying, don't let them in. Don't let them in. And I said, honey, you have support and love and care that is waiting for you right outside of the store. And you have locked it out of your life. Mm. We have got to have the courage to open the door and tell them what is going on. So we opened the door. I sat on the bed with all of those girls and I said, listen, she has anxiety. This is called anxiety. Sometimes she just feels anxious and she doesn't know why. And this is what she needs from you. She just mm -hmm. needs you to kind of keep a little bit of space, but stay close by and just say things that are reassuring. And if you know it, and this is when you would need to go get an adult. I'll tell you, those girls felt so empowered and they were mm. on a mission. And anytime Savannah would have a panic attack, they would say, you know, make this protective perimeter <laughs> around her. You know? This is a panic attack and we know when to get an adult and she's okay. We just need to give her some space. And so I think kids can understand and comprehend so much more than we think that they're capable of doing. I could not agree more, especially with like TikTok. Yes. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think I have ADHD because of TikTok videos and, and as a counselor, I'm like, I don't, it makes me cringe a little bit, but also it's like really cool of how empowered people are becoming the awareness that's happening that our kids are putting more of a label to things and being able to identify I'm struggling today. How often do you feel like it's good to check in with our kids with that scale? Because I'm, I feel like I'm the type of parent who would want to check in like every single day and like overdo <laughs> it. 
So do you feel like it's like a once a week check-in or like what rhythm do you feel like is helpful as a, as a rule of thumb? I'm sure it varies from person to person. I know. I'm so glad you asked me about this because I'll tell you uh, pretty much every night I do a heart check with each one of my teens. Now that takes me a long time. I am not going to lie bedtime. I mean, I'm sorry to all of your moms of toddlers who are out there listening, who are struggling with bedtime and looking forward to that time when it gets better. But you know, when my kid comes home from school, they will tell me, oh, the day was fine. But before they go to bed, they want to read me war and peace, you know, of, of <laughs> they want to tell me every little thing. But I've just recognized that it's really important for me to set aside that time. And so I just go and sit at the end of each one of their beds and just I'm just there. And so I, I feel like it's just kind of a natural thing. Like sometimes I know I need to check mm-hmm. in and say, it seems like you're struggling today. What's your number? And they'll tell me. And, uh, and then, you know, sometimes we have really long conversations and sometimes they're shorter, but just asking them, you know, about their, those emotions, honestly, I think they love it. They love it when I'm asking them questions and, you know, wanting to know, um, just I'm here and I want to know that. Now it didn't start that way. You know, you have to work to build a relationship and develop some, um, you know, comfort in that way, but just go and sit. And maybe the first time you're just there two minutes and you feel like that went horribly. And then you go back and as you build time and trust and they see that you're there, I, one of the analogies that I use when I'm speaking is, you know, we expect chia pet parenting. Like we, everything is instant gratification. I can get on my Starbucks app and order my drink exactly like I want it and have it at about three minutes flat. But for kids, you know, it's really more like a pineapple. You plant that seed and you don't see anything and you think, is this ever going to grow? Am I ever going to see anything? And then all of a sudden, two years later, it starts to grow and you think, ah, there it is. I remember planting that. And that is the very gratifying moment in parenting. I love that picture of a pineapple. I, we were on a trip and went to a, a pineapple plantation and I was shocked at how long it takes and how each plant only bears one, one. pineapple. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, <laughs> that takes so long. I think that's a great analogy. And it's not, it, sometimes it goes well and other times it doesn't go well. And I, I think that's the hard part as a parent is yeah. not basing our job performance on their mood and emotion, but knowing that we're trying and that we're going to keep getting in the game, even though it may not be like a winning performance that day. It's so true. It's really a hard truth to accept that it is not our teen's job in life to validate our parenting efforts. Oh, that is so hard. But, you know, we seek that validation from them because we'll do something and then we want them to immediately validate that. Oh, yeah, that worked. That was effective. And that's why I think it's really important for even parental mental health to have that support system. Like for me, it's my sister. I can call her and tell her. Let me tell you, I was the best mom today. Like I was on my <laughs> A game and I got nothing. They I got nothing. No, thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And she will tell me, you are the best mom ever. And I, you are rocking it and I see you. And you know what? It sounds so silly, but it honestly makes me feel better. And I think, okay, all right, I can, I can face this. I can go on, you know, I can, um, I can face another day. <laughs> 
What are some other parenting pro tips that you typically recommend in your office when it comes to depression, anxiety, and even things like OCD, eating disorders? Because there's a, a whole spectrum and host of issues that our kids are dealing with. And I'll hear people say, well, what do kids have? What do kids have to worry about? What do kids have to struggle with? And the reality is, is they are struggling with a lot. And so what are some pro tips from a, both a personal point of view and also that professional point of view that we can put in our, our toolkit, so to speak, to help us out? Sure. So I think that one of the most important things to remember is that early intervention is best. So, so many times as parents, we take this wait and see approach and we just see those early symptoms and our parenting radar kind of goes off like something is not quite right, but you just let it go. And then by the time you're ready to do something about it, a lot of times it's a much bigger problem. So I'm not saying to overreact about every little thing, but I'm just saying that if your parenting sense says something is amiss, then then go and talk to a healthcare provider. We are really equipped to look at mental health. A lot of times what's going to happen is just, we're going to give you what we call a behavior rating scale. And we have some for depression, anxiety, or disordered eating, which actually is kind of ironic because parents aren't usually as afraid of that, but that is the most deadly mental health disorder right. of all of them. So, and I'm seeing in, it's just significant numbers of increasing and in disordered eating and both girls and boys. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And people have the misconception that disordered eating is just going to be a very thin female is what they're going to look for. And we have all kinds of body sizes and body types that have disordered eating um, that, that need to be evaluated. But the thing to remember is that their brains are neuroplastic and they can be easily reshaped and retrained. And so the earlier that we can do that, the better. So I think that's one of the, that's just the biggest parenting pro tip that I would have of, of all of those mental health, just encompassing mental health, you know, remember when your babies were little and they're fussy in the night and you think I'm going to take them in and see if they have an ear infection and you go in and then your pediatric provider says, you know what? It looks okay. It's probably just teething and you leave and you think, okay, oh, all right, good. I feel better. Yeah. This is same approach with mental health. So go in and, you know, you say, I'm concerned about this. And they come out and say, you know what, everything, I think everything's okay. You know, here, you just need, um, you know, some sunshine and a walk and maybe a hug from a puppy, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like sometimes it can be mm -hmm. something as simple as that, but just having that reassurance of knowing, I think is the most important thing that parents can do. And teens want to see that you're their advocate. They don't tell you that they fold their arms, they sigh, they roll their eyes and they're not telling you, oh, you're so stupid. They're telling you, I don't feel confident about myself. Mm. I'm really afraid of what you're going to think. Yeah. I'm going to test you a little bit to see kind of where this is going to go. I'm embarrassed. Yes. I'm yes. scared. Yes. So sometimes you may say something like, you know, um, I see, I talked to one, of, you know, I know one of your friends is struggling with this. If you're ever struggling with, like this, just make sure that you always leave that open door. You can always talk to me about anything. I say that to my kids 15 thousand times a year, you know, mm -hmm. you can always talk to me about anything and I may be upset or it may be something, you know, that's difficult to talk about, but I promise we will find a way through it together. That's so good to let them know that they aren't alone. 
I know one of the things that's really scary for me as a parent is how much social media and YouTube influences our kids. And so I know for, for my kids, we, we have just really shut all of that down and my daughter's on YouTube, but I go through her channel. I go through my son's channel, like privacy features, settings, all of that, because it was amazing because she was watching a lot of content, which I felt like in a way was helpful, but also Mm -hmm. I think really began to shape her idea of things and scared her. And so in regards to mental health, I'm like, if you have any questions, like, please come to me and we can watch those, that content together versus you just figuring all of this stuff out on your own. Do you feel like kids are doing that? Just trying to figure out their own mental health journey on their own and with their own friend group. I'm so glad you brought this up because I think a lot of times parents are afraid to initiate these conversations because they don't want to expose their kid to something that they haven't been exposed to yet, but exposing them intentionally and in a developmentally appropriate way positions you as a parent, as the expert on that topic. And they know they can come to you with a question. Because a lot of times when kids see something, say they see, my my daughter encountered pornography on YouTube through a friend when she was in fifth grade. But she knew that, you know, we had talked about that before in a way that said, you know, you may see things on YouTube or other electronic uh, media that make you feel uncomfortable. If you feel uncomfortable, then come and talk to me. And what they're experiencing is shame, but they don't know why. And so they feel like it's something bad. So I shouldn't tell and this, we want to hide our shame and they don't want to tell that, but just, I think it's so important to um, initiate that conversation because kids have underdeveloped character to handle the overexposure of, of social media. And we need to make sure that, that we are doing that. And the other thing that I would say about social media is that if we're really honest as parents. We have a love hate relationship with social media. We love ours. We hate our kids. <laughs> And we really have to look inside because I know as a pediatric nurse practitioner, any healthy behavior that a kid is going to adopt is going to be because the parent does. If a kid wears a bike helmet, it's because their parent wears a helmet. If a kid eats healthy food, it's because their parent eats healthy food. And we as parents, I am guilty of of what we call, I don't know if you've heard this term, fubbing, a phone snubbing, you know, your teens. Uh, We do that all the time. And if you look at the research, you know, we don't listen to them. Um, We engage in, you know, binge watching shows, but then we'll, we'll gripe at them for doing it or being on our phone too much. But then we have that. I I was talking with my um, son about, you know, how people can be, uh, kids can get addicted to social media and he was just listening and I was very pious, you know, and uh, (laughs) sharing all the research. (laughs) Exactly. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, that video game is just like Facebook for adults. And I thought, oh, you're so right. And we normalize it and justify it for ourselves. But we really, when we're frustrated with behaviors that come in our kids, the first thing that we need to do is say, our kids are just reflecting something that we are doing. So we need to look inside first and and address, you know, the log in our own eye before we address the speck in someone else's. That's so good. What are some best practices that you recommend from that you know, pediatric point of view in terms of screen time, you know, social media. Screen time is so difficult. We used to, before COVID, we talked all about screen time and now it's kind of out there. I haven't window. heard it. Yeah. And then you feel like you're the 
the screen time police, you know, you're constantly like having to give them an extra 15 minutes if you set a limit on their phone or that kind of thing. So I think, you know, the best, what's worked for me and for my family is setting tech-free times and tech-free zones. So our tech-free zones are the table. Anytime we're eating at the table, no one is allowed to have a phone. Me included, my husband included, our kids will be the first to call us out on them <laughs> um, and say no phones at the table. And, uh, and we also don't use our phones in the car. The car is a great time to have a captive audience. And so I saw, you know, my kids would just get in the car after school and just immediately get on their phone. And so we just made the phone. We just said it's a tech-free zone and they've accepted that. And their bedrooms, their bedrooms are a tech-free zone because I see so many kids in practice with sleep disruption. They're waking up, checking their phone in the night. And also, you know, kids are taking pictures of their most intimate and vulnerable spaces. And I've seen really negative outcomes from that. So I have a check-in spot when my kids' friends come over. They thought I was absolutely um, out of my mind the first time that I did it, uh, my kids' friends. But you know what? They, they like it. They think it's novel. And I think the main thing that parents should focus on is just replacing that phone time with good family activities. Yeah, I'm telling you with teens, if you just put you know pizza rolls or something like that in the oven, like the teens are going to come and they're going to gather around the table and say, what are you making? Um, if you go on a walk and say, Hey, I'm going on a walk. They may go with you. If you pull out a game or a puzzle, they may sit down and do it with you. So just, I think, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, in Romans where it talks about renewing your mind, it's not about limiting the bad things. It's about replacing it with good things, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a much more positive intentionality. I love that. I saw somebody's post over the weekend that said that she doesn't like to have a budget, but she likes to have a spending plan. Oh, and I think that's, that's, that's what you're saying. Like, how are we going to spend our social media or our screen time? What do you think in regards to like Snapchat and Instagram in regards to our kids and ages? What do you recommend for that? That is probably one of the most common questions that I get. And absolutely, I can give you a hard and fast answer. It should not even be a conversation until at least age 13. Period. End of story. Amen. Because the Children's Privacy Act, federal law, sets that as the minimum age. So any social media that you use, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Be Real is the new craze. You have to check a little box that says you're 13. And if you are not 13, then you are violating those terms of use. And if something happens on that platform, if you're bullied, if you are you know, traumatized or experience other harm, you have potentially voided any protection available to you. So I hear a lot of times parents will say, well, I watch it really closely and my kid's really responsible. But I just tell them the law does not make exception for vigilant parents and responsible teens. It just doesn't. So um, the other thing I think parents make a mistake uh, and I used to do this too, until I got great advice, advice from one of my mentors to say, oh, you can do this when you're this old. I say, we can talk about this when you're this old and these, and every kid is different, right? One of my kids could have done social media, probably at four, the other might be 40, you know, (laughs) every kid is different. And so I think it's just important to have those conversations. If your kid is having identity issues and anxiety issues, I promise you social media media is not going to help that at all. And you might feel like the big, bad, mean parent, uh, but you know, they, I would still say no. Now that's not to ignore the fact that 
other kids might think that is the most inhumane punishment in the world. So they may offer them social media access through one of their old phones, through another account on their phone. So we still have to be having these conversations about social media, even if you think your kid does not have an account. Mm -hmm. And full disclosure, after reading what you wrote, I sat down with my daughter and said, hey, your Snapchat is going away. And she's like, why? And I'm like, because I did not realize that that was a federal law. And if anything happens, like we could be the ones to get in trouble and we cannot get the help that we need. So therefore that goes away until you're 13. And I get that that's really frustrating. And she's like, well, everyone has it. And I'm like, I I doubt it. Um, but, but you're not going to have it. And I get that, that you're mad about it. And I, I'm, I'm sorry that I did not realize that. And that's being, will you please delete it now? And she did. And that was it. It wasn't, there wasn't any other further discussion. I love your transparency. First of all, if your daughter's listening, I'm very sorry, but kind of not sorry. <laughs> she does not listen. She does not listen. Okay. All right. Well, she can listen when she's older. Yes. But I give your mom a huge high five because what you did is so awesome. And it brings up exactly the point that we should remember as parents that it is perfectly okay to reset boundaries. I've done it many, many times. You've read in my book, my whole long journey to coming to not, you know, using social media. There's a lot that went into that, but it is perfectly okay to go to your kid and say, you know, I've learned some new information that's helped me, that's helped inform my decision-making and we're going to reset these boundaries. And I realize you may not like it, but it's for your good. And that's what I'm here for. And I'm big and strong enough to take that. And that's okay. So I think a lot of times, especially with social media, you know, I had one mom who told me that her son had removed seven um, tracking softwares from the phone. So she wanted a recommendation for a tracking software that, uh, you know, that that he couldn't take off. And I said, perhaps the answer is to take the phone, you know, (laughs) and my kids will put probably put on my tombstone. I pay, I say, like, if I pay for it, then I'm going to set the parameters for that. And if you want to, you know, uh, as you grow and mature and take on those responsibilities on your own, then we can have a different conversation. But I applaud you um, so, so, so much. Cause I think kids are just not prepared to handle the situations that can arise on social media. And we as parents are not prepared to prepare them for it. Driving, we know what can happen. We know to tell them, you know, to look for people who are riding a bike or to, you know, if you're the first person to off the line in a red light, you wait a second and look both ways. We have no idea the harms that can come on social media and they blindside us. And that's what I see with families. It may seem hard to tell your kid no, but I'm telling you, I've been with family after family after family who has been blindsided after the fact. And I don't want to see that happen. Mm -hmm. It is hard. And I just feel bad and you feel guilty for like, man, I shouldn't have gotten myself in the this place in the, in the first place, but I think it's just like so much better to say, I was, I just said I was wrong and I'm sorry. And I know that you're upset and I get that, but, and we did compromise a letter be on Pinterest, but we need to go through that together. Well, so, no one has told you this week. You are a fantastic mom. Thank you, Jessica. You are doing such a good job. You are balancing love and discipline in an amazing way. And your kids are so blessed to have you as a mom. 
just in Thank case. Thank you. Yeah, no, no. Or last month, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know that's it's, what it's I say. It's a thankless to... job. It's a thankless yes, job, but it's our job to do it. Yes, it is. I do not, I do not have my kids in a corner telling me, you know, that, oh, I'm doing such a good <laughs> It's usually the opposite. You know, mm-hmm. you're embarrassing. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's, you know, the jeans that, that my skinny jeans are my side part. And um, sometimes that's just the simple act of breathing. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, do you feel like there's anything that we didn't talk about today that it would be super helpful for a parent listening that's feeling lost with their kids or a final encouragement? Sure. So what I would say to the parent out there listening who needs encouragement is that this is a journey. This is not about instant results. And this is a journey that you have to have faith in. And I would just encourage you to have faith in the parenting that you're putting in. Know that your teen really does love you and they really do care about what you say. They're listening intently to every seed that you sow through the words that you say. Uh, They care very much about what you think about them. And this is an investment. And that's what I I'm inviting parents to do on this investment in this behind closed doors journey. I'm not inviting you to read a book and say, okay, that's good. This is an intentional journey that you can take. If you take these chapters one month at a time and take the time to have these conversations, I promise you one year from now, you are going to look back and think you are in a much different place. And we have seasons in parenting. There are valleys and there are mountaintops, but, uh, but it is so worth the effort. My old this now is a sophomore in college. I have an amazing relationship with her. It's so exciting to see all of those seeds. And that's not to say that we don't have struggles. We have struggles, but you are not alone. You have a great community here. I mean, really, Melissa, you provided an amazing community. So I would say plug in, be transparent, be authentic, be vulnerable. And you never know, you know, what kind of rewards can come from that. And if you don't mind, I just want to tack on one thing, which is don't wait. It's yes. never too late. I mean, it is harder the older the kids get, but it's still never too late to say, I wish I would have done this different and and I'm going to try it now. And I hope that's okay with you. But even if it's not, we're still going to do this. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I taught a parenting class right before COVID and I had a dad, we were talking about some discipline issues and everything. And he, uh, big military type. Like, you know, he walked in the room and I immediately felt a little safer, like that kind of dad. And, uh, he came into the parenting class and he had little kids. They had a blended family. And he said, he started crying. Mm. He said, I just thought about some of the mistakes I made with my daughter. He said, she's in college. He said, I just got in the car after the class and just drove up to her college and just showed up and just said, Hey, I'm sorry for these things that I did. And I want to start over Mm. and it was amazing. You know, here she is in college and they're working on building this beautiful relationship. So it is never, ever, ever too late to build a great relationship with your kids. Thank you for sharing that story. And thank you for your transparency and all the work that went into who you are as a person, the professional that you are the mom that you are and all the work that you do, because it's a lot to do all the things that you're doing, but man, what an effort or what a, what a, what an encouragement and blessing you are to so many. 
Oh, thank you so much for that. That was probably the hardest part of this journey, but you know, we learned so much more from our failures. So if you want to learn more about my parenting failures, there are plenty <laughs> of them in behind closed doors and you can learn from my mistakes. I would, uh, I, I would love for you not to make some of those mistakes that I did, but we are, we're all in this together. And thank you so much for this conversation today, Melissa. You're it so has encouraged good. my heart for sure. Uh, where can we find you? You can find me at drnursemama.com and you can find everything that you need there, all my socials and uh, every way to get in touch with me at there, drnursemama.com. And I'm sure Behind Closed Doors is available wherever books are sold. It is. It's going to be in everyone's hands on October 18th, but you can pre-order and start reading the first three chapters today. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. Be sure to visit my website where you can subscribe to get the show notes and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, wherever it is that you get your podcast that way you never miss a show. And yay, I am now on YouTube, which is so fun because now you get to see the body mannerisms and my hand flailing and just those social emotional cues that I think add so much depth to the interviews. So you can find me on YouTube and you can find that link in the show notes. I would love it if you were to tell a friend about the show and add some stars to the review. Be sure to tune in next week where we continue conversations to help you to thrive in your life.